Welcome to The Deciding Point, our Cracked Rackets weekly roundup of the biggest storylines going on throughout the tennis world. We slid headfirst this past week into the start of the 2021 clay court season. The action across the WTA and ATP tours delivering the goods. Want to recap all of last week's action, preview this week's events in Charleston and Monte Carlo. With that in mind, Westoff, roll those credits. Let's start today's show. Any discussion of last week's event in Charleston has to start with a discussion about Veronica Kudermatova as the 23-year-old Russian did not drop a set en route to the second WTA-level title of her career now for Kudermatova. What was so impressive about her throughout the week? It started with the fundamentals. She won over 70% of her first serve points in almost every one of her matches played this week. Now, in a couple of them, she only made about 50% of her first serve but when you can play that sort of dominant first strike tennis, particularly on the clay courts, it's going to lead to success. Now, the other thing she did so well, attacking opponent's second serve. She won over 50% of her second serve points in all, but one of her matches she played in Charleston. And when you get to be the, the aggressor, when you get to play first strike tennis on clay, it's that much more effective because, of course, it's that much more difficult to find your footing on the surface. When you're the aggressor, you can hit behind your opponents. You can, you know, continue to attack the open court. You can mix up your speed, play the drop shot, play the slice. And, you know, Kudermatova had it all working for her this past week. And I think the thing that's so exciting about her, in particular, her level of play these past 52 weeks, is how tough and out she has been and how consistent she's been, regardless of the event, regardless of the surface. You look now, she's 26 and 15 since the tour restarted in August. And that's not sensational. But when you break it down in an even further granular level, of those 15 losses, 13 of them to players currently ranked inside the WTA Top 35. The non-Top 35 losses were to young up-and-coming American Ann Lee and to Jeannie Bouchard in her first match post-restart. And, you know, when you look at Kudermatova, you know, the physical profile checks out across surfaces. She's a really fluid mover. She is able to turn defense into offense, and she can be overwhelmed by pace. Sometimes that forehand backswing, you know, if you can jam it, she's going to produce an error. She likes to play flat through the court, and sometimes she'll get a little bit, dare I say, slap happy and produce a streak of errors, but she didn't this week. She was locked in, and whenever two, three points would go awry, she would zone herself back in, make that first return, play big to open space, and then just use that return or the first serve to open up the rest of the court to impose herself through the rest of her game. She's just someone, you know, she slides into her shots. Uh, She's comfortable playing the slice. She's comfortable moving forward. She can just do a lot of things. Does she do anything at an elite level? You look at Tennis Abstract's leaderboard, you know, she's about 14th in terms of uh, her first serve win percentage amongst top 50 players. She's actually number 12 in terms of hold percentage in the last 52 weeks amongst top 50 players. That hold percentage, how frequently you are holding serve in your matches. Now, she's a bottom 10 returner amongst top 50 players, and I think that speaks to her aggressive nature. She wants to play big on that return, go for her chances because she is someone who holds serve with relative ease. 
Those are all little things you have to brush up on the margins, being more consistent with your return of serve. That, that's something that comes with more time. But Kudermatova now up to number 29 in the world. And again, she turns 24 at the end of this month, but she's only 24 years old, a top 30 player through and through. She really is a litmus test, a gateway. If you can beat her, it means you're probably a top 15, top 10 player right now. If you can't, it means you're not because that's how good she's been, consistent she's been week in, week out. A well-deserved title for her. Again, second of her career, first since 2019. I think she deserves to be seated at all of the uh, slams. She is that good. Certainly now, she has put herself in a position to be just that. In terms of the other storylines coming out of Charleston, there were you know, a couple of other fantastic performances. Paula Bedosa-Jabert, who struggled with health at the beginning of this season. She's still only 23 years old. She looks so good on the clay courts. Just seems to move so comfortably, able to take open space, able to change direction from the baseline, able to sustain long cross-court rallies, someone who really does slide into her shots, uses her fitness to buy herself extra time. She doesn't have an overwhelming weapon, uh, and you know she suffered because of that against Kudermatova. She just wasn't able to create anything easy against her, but she's going to be a really tough out, and she's going to earn another upset at some point during this clay court season. Ditto for finalist here in Charleston, Dunka, uh, Dunka Kovinich, who she she was just great. I mean, in her semifinal against Own Jabour, she handled Jabour's variety. She moves so well. Again, movement in clay court tennis is the key. But Dosa Jaber, Kavinich, Kudermatova, they were ready to make that adjustment more so than some of the power players who had had success on the hard courts in the months leading up to this week in Charleston. But overall, you know, again, a fantastic level of play. It was the first clay court event of the season that we saw. Some new faces emerge should surprise no one, but... You know, Barty still looked good. We had a Sloan Stevens resurgence. Overall, if hopefully week two, I should say, in Charleston can provide the sort of action that week one did, because overall, week one in Charleston, a phenomenal event. Home Court Advantage was the name of the game across three of our ATP and WTA events this past week. Let's start on the men's side, where Lorenzo Senego became the first Italian man since 2006 to win a title on home soil. Now, for Sonego, he also earned the doubles title on the week and earned three three-set victories in his quarterfinal, semifinal, and final matches to take home the victory for Sonego. You know, Yannick Hanifman, his quarterfinal opponent, served for the match in the second set. Sonego was able to flip the script. He was up big on Taylor Fritz, a set and three love before blowing that lead, but... You know, if you watch Lorenzo Sinego, the word that jumps out to you, his energy on the court, it's contagious. And if I was playing him, I'd want to punch him in the face with all the yelling, the grunting he does, the eccentric celebrations. As a fan, though, boy, is it entertaining. And I mean, for Sinego, he's also sort of, you know, 26 years old, kind of the physical profile of what you expect from your modern men's tennis player. He's what, 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", hits the big serve, the big forehand but also employs some really nice variety. He's plenty comfortable playing the forehand drop shot, and he loves to, you know, bait his opponents into standing six, seven, eight feet behind the uh, baseline by, you know, slamming three forehands in a row and then mixing in that drop shot. The backhand 
is a little placeholder-ish, but throughout the course of both his semifinals and finals against Fritz and Laszlo Gier, respectively, he started to swing through that ball. And again, he's comfortable moving forward, employing variety. He's someone who wants to hit the big winner. He's not afraid of the big moments. He has one of the most effective first serves on tour of late these past 52 weeks. And for Sinego, it's his second title in the past 52 weeks on two different surfaces. You all may recall he won in Vienna at the end of 2020. Here, he follows it up with the victory on the clay here to start in Cagliari. And you look again for Lorenzo Snego up to a new career high of number 28, 21 and 16 in his last 52 weeks. Does that blow you away? No, but all ATP level events, two ATP titles, that's the resume of a top 30 player. So Snego certainly starting to play his best tennis as you could understand 26 years old starting to enter the prime of his career he's the highest ranked player born in 1995 on the men's side why do I mention that fact only because I was also born on in 1995 and you know just it's worth noting Lorenzo Sinek highest ranked player and it speaks to maybe the dearth between of talent between the big three big four and uh, the next gen guys we see emerging but anyways good week for Sinego on his home soil of Italy. Great week for the Spaniards in Marbella. For the first time, I believe, in 17 years, all four semifinalists for the ATP event in Spain were from the same country. Now, for good news for Spanish fans, they were all from the home country of Spain, as it was Pablo Carreno Busta, Carlos Alcaraz, Jaume Munar, and I believe Albert Ramos Vinolas, I don't believe, I know, were your four semifinalists. I mentioned first time in 17 years, first time since 2004, when, by the way, it was also for Spaniards who had reached the semifinal stage or later of an event. And for Pablo Carreno Busta, he earns the fifth title of his ATP career. It's a very limited list. Fewer than 20 players currently on tour have won five titles. And, you know, for Carreno Busta, it's just physically he's such a tough out. And, you know, he's got that big forehand weapon. When he's able to get clean looks at the forehand, he's going to move you around the court. He's so comfortable moving on the surface. And, you know, you look at his opponents down the stretch of this event for Carreno Busta, the win over Munar. Munar made him work and We'll talk about Hami Munar in a second, who was the winner of the week, in my opinion. But, um, yeah, I mean, for Carino Busta, just physically such a tough out. Big forehand. He is going to be a nightmare for so many people to play throughout the course of this clay court season. For Hami Munar, who has won about every match he's played at the challenger level on clay over these past 52 weeks, something like 39-11 and 11 or 36-11, and 11, I think, at the challenger level on clay with a couple of titles and I think five total finals, again, over since just the start of August. It should surprise no one to see him do this on a clay event just at the ATP level. You look for Munar, simply put, he outworked, out Carlos Alcaraz and the young 17-year-old Spaniard continues to be a stud. Any next-gen conversation you're having has to include Carlos Alcaraz, but it's a testament to Munar's ability to move the ball around the court, a testament to his ability from a movement standpoint to take away the thing you want to do most, his ability to anticipate that Alcaraz wants to set up the big inside-out and inside-in forehand combo, and Munar just beat him to the spot. He took the ball early. He's fundamentally solid off of both wings. He's comfortable employing the drop shot. He's got good hands at the net. Yes, his second serve is never going to blow you away, but he makes up for it with an elite first step, elite quickness. Guy's a stud. 
He was the winner on the week. That second set he played against Pablo Carreno Busta in the final. That's as good of a set on clay as you're going to see from anyone. And it's just the depth of his ground stroke gets better and better with each passing tournament. Anyways, I'm a Moonar fan. He deserves all the praise in the world after this past week, as does Carlos Alcaraz, the 17-year-old first ATP semifinal of his career. He has been, what he win, two, three challenger finals at the end of last season. I mentioned this before, but anytime you join the list of Gasquet, FAA, Djokovic, and Nadal in terms of your challenger level success, and that's the sort of success Alcaraz has had of late. Del Potro's on that list as well. That's probably pretty good company. You're probably going to doing some things right in your development. Alcaraz was sensational. And again, the level of play for early in the clay season, really, really high in Marbella. Last but certainly not least, I want to talk just quickly about 2019 Junior U.S. Open champion and winner of her first WTA-level title this past week in Bogota, Maria Carmilla Osorio Serrano. You talk about for uh, Osorio Serrano. She is the first Colombian player to reach the final in Bogota in 11 years, but with her victory, Colombian players now 4-0 in their four finals they've played at the Bogota event. She was the youngest Colombian ever in to a WTA level final, only the fourth ever, I believe, to do it. And I mean, you watch her play. It's a very interesting game style. She likes to slice that backhand. She Her forehand's a bazooka when she wants it to be. She's also very capable of elevating that ball. High topspin, great depth to buy herself time and just get the point back to neutral. There were also times that when she was hitting through her backhand and, you know, she would go like six points in a row where she didn't hit a slice and then she would go 12 points in a row where she only hit slice backhands. I loved her north-south speed. I know that's like a really granular thing, but her ability to track down the drop shots that were thrown by her by Tamara Zidanzik in the final in Bogota. Her north-south speed is elite. Now, I need to see a little bit more laterally, but I think that's something that always improves with age and experience because lateral movement is as much anticipation as it is first-step speed, Um, and she clearly has the anticipation skills, but why I think she projects as a plus mover is because she... She tracks down drop shots. She slides into them. She can do something with the ball when she's sliding into her shot. And just, again, she's got a lot of weapons. Now, I need to see more. You know, there are a lot of... It it got funky. There are a lot of unforced errors in that final. But, you know, 19-year-old junior U.S. Open champion. She has the pedigree. She earns the title on home soil. And again, it's not often you get to say home field advantage in tennis. It certainly was this week. Sinego, uh, Juan, Pablo, uh, Juan Pablo, excuse me, Pablo Carreno Busta and Maria Camila Asorio Serrano all delivering titles in their home countries. Let's preview this week's WTA action now, and we've got two events on the schedule. We've got the Billie Jean Cup playoffs. I'm not sure exactly what that event is going to end up looking like, but certainly something we are excited about and will update you on throughout the week on the Mini Break podcast. But let's talk more seriously about the draw we already have out. It's Charleston Part 2, and so much credit needs to go to the entire team in Charleston. We talk about how difficult it is to facilitate events amidst a pandemic. They're able to facilitate two of them. That's a uh, testament to the work that's being done on site there to ensure the safety of health and everyone participating. They're also offering players the opportunity to get vaccinated while at the tournament. And we don't have to get into, you know, 
whatever that comes associated with all things when you start talking vaccination. I happen to believe that's a very good thing. Scientists are scientists for a reason. Shout out to Charleston for at least making that option available for players. Even if you don't agree with the vaccination, you have to credit Charleston for making that option available to its players. Anyways, venturing away from that, let's talk about the tennis we're actually going to see on the court. Own Jabour, semifinalist last week. She returns as the top seed here. You've also got Magda Lynette, Alize Cornet as top four seeds. I believe your number three seed on the week is Shelby Rogers, and that's someone I'm in a circle because she's got the sort of power that transcends you know, regardless of surface. With her serve, with her forehand, honestly, her backhand wing as well, with how well she's moving, how confidently she's playing. You know, she almost knocked off Ashley Barty last week, and, you know, given the fact that she's now had a few days to rest up, facing Shelby Rogers is a dangerous proposition, and I do think, you know, she's been a top 40 player by uh, WTA rankings. She's been a top 35 player by Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings since the tour restarted in August. I could just see this being her sort of week so that's probably my favorite entering the event of course there are so many other fun players throughout the draw and the fun part about part two of this event yeah perhaps you have a few less headliners than you did last week but you get to see you know WTA level competing opportunities for players like Claire Liu who's an ascending young American you get to see it for you know plenty of other players throughout the draw I'm looking here we get to see Emma Navarro again who's currently enjoying a very successful freshman season at Virginia Clara Austin's in the draw, or Sirio Serrano is in the draw as well. So, you know, overall, you get a little bit of everything in Charleston. And more importantly, we just get to see more repetitions for these players on the green clay. Again, Billie Jean Cup, uh, King Cup playoffs. We're going to update more on the mini break. But that is your preview of Charleston Part 2 coming up this week. For this week's deciding point, I wanted to preview the year's first ATP Masters 1000 event happening in Monte Carlo this week. Tons of storylines for us to monitor. Let's start with the return of Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal. Now, the last time we saw both of them compete in a clay court match, it was in the 2020 French Open final. Nadal dispatching Djokovic with ease in that affair. And, of course, Nadal coasted, really, to another French Open title last fall. He enters this clay court season as the unequivocal favorite and certainly as we approach Roland Garros that sentiment will only continue uh, to be echoed if not picked up at various outlets but you know again Rafa looked vulnerable in Australia physically can he continue to just clay season after clay season deliver the sort of performances he can I mean we already know he's superhuman if he can continue to do it for if he can continue to do it excuse me for what two three four more years at that point, I don't know. We probably need to start saving his blood and just in, incorporating it into everything we're doing because that is what a superhuman looks like. He's been superhuman across the clay courts throughout his entire career. There's no reason to think he won't be again. But, of course, you know, for Novak Djokovic, he, he, it, it sucks because, you know, without Ra, you could say this for so many players, but without Rafael Nadal, he would also be considered, he probably should be one of the five best clay court players of all time, and he would have countless other French Open titles on his resume, but he's only got the one. 
and he'll continue to chase that second French Open title. It's the slam he's had the least amount of success at. Certainly, he will view this Monte Carlo as a building block in his clay court season. You look at some of the other big storylines. It's weird to see Daniil Medvedev as the two seed, right? Not Rafael Nadal. Of course, Medvedev lost last year. I think it was first round to Fucevic uh, in that French Open. Uh, Of course, Fucevic has had so much success of late, so that loss looks much better with retrospect. But, you know... With his big serve, with his length, you would think Daniil Medvedev would have had more success on clay than he has already. He's had, I think it was the one big semifinal run in Barcelona a few years back, but outside of that, hasn't really had the opportunity to, or hasn't really, I should pose, delivered the results that certainly he he is capable of doing on this surface. It's never going to be his best surface, but he's got so much variety and just physically there's no reason his game can't translate. So that's a storyline certainly to watch this week. Of course, there's also the next next gen, the Holger Runes, Lorenzo Musetti's, Yannick Sinners of the world. How are they going to compete? Now that certainly there's a little bit more spotlight on all of them. How do guys like Paparin, Sasha Bublik, and Aslan Karatsev obviously, uh, Lloyd Harris's of the world, how does their play translate with the transition of surfaces. These are all the things to monitor throughout the week. Of course, it should be an extraordinary level of play. Seems crazy to think, given his, this is a tangent, but given that Halmi Munar, how good he's been on the clay, he didn't get into the draw in Monte Carlo. If you're trying to argue he's not one of the 50 best clay court players in the world, I'm sorry, I don't have patience for that right now. But anyways, all of that is a tangent to say, oh, what about a guy like Kubi Hercats? What does he do to follow up his Miami performance as well? That's a fascinating little storyline to keep in mind. There's so many to monitor. It is worthy of the first Masters 1000 event on clay, and it certainly feels nice to have Djokovic and Nadal back in the mix. But overall, should be a very, very, very fun start to some high-level clay court action.